Hey everybody, welcome to the Embed Podcast in which we discuss entrepreneurship and tech. Today we have a fascinating episode discussing blitzscaling, what it is, and how it can be used to expand your business. To talk more on these topics, we have a very special guest, Chris Ye. Hopefully sound quality is good. You can see I've got a pop filter, I've got a condenser mic, we're good. Yeah, it sounds excellent on my end. I, a lot of people I meet with, they just use their computer mics. It's like, yeah, it's all right. But no, come on, people, have some yeah. pride. It doesn't yeah, cost yeah. much to have a condenser mic. So you got your own podcast. When did that start? So I started podcasting. I've, I've always liked podcasts. I've been listening to them for hmm, probably 15 years now. And there's some of the OGs that I used to listen to, like the Bill Simmons podcast back when it was the BS report on ESPN, uh, the great Kevin Pollack with the Kevin Pollack chat show, which is something he also started doing a long time ago and was also streaming live. So I listened to all these podcasts and I always want to do a podcast, but so much work. And yeah. then finally Anchor came along and I was like, aha, somebody's finally done what I've asked them to do, which is to make an easy way to create podcasts. And of course, Anchor has done exactly what I expected, which is you know, ultimately democratize podcasting, allow so many other people to start podcasting. And that's when I began. Uh, I only really started to take the podcasting more seriously, get the equipment and start doing everything. Back after, it turns out a couple of years ago, I went on a television show called Mental Samurai host by Rob Lowe, which is a, a game show where you're, it's kind of like Jeopardy, except you're thrown around a, a robotic arm. And I decided, well, you know, take advantage of this. I'll actually interview my fellow contestants since I knew who they are. And so that was how I got started. But I've done just tons of different kinds of podcasts. I haven't taken my podcast as serious as you've taken yours. You're doing such a great job of building it up. But I interview my various old friends, classmates, people who are famous, authors, other random people who just I know. And I just have a good time with it. Yeah, it's awesome. I think one of the things that I found that helps the most is uh, you have an established career. So I think basically appearing on any podcast, um, that's where listeners are interested in whatever that topic is, for example, if it's entrepreneurship. Um, and that's one, one of the main sources where I got uh, my audience. Which reminds me, I should, of course, point out to people that they can find out more about Chris Ye at chrisye.com, C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H.com. You can find a link to the Chris Ye podcast. You can download the podcast or subscribe to it wherever fine podcasts can be downloaded. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Ye, C-H-R-I-S-Y-E-H. How's that for a plug? Excellent plug. Yeah, I'll have all the links posted in the description. If only we were YouTubers. Smash that subscribe link. I know, right? Just There is a subscribe button, I think, on Apple Podcasts now. So There you go, finally. There you go. All right, um, so let's start off with some background. You went for Stanford for product design and creative writing, and then Harvard Business School for an MBA in entrepreneurship. And now you're a founding partner over at the private equity and venture capital firm, Blitzscaling Ventures. So going back a little bit, where did you start your entrepreneurial ventures? So I was not one of these guys who grew up as an entrepreneur who was always you know, having my own lemonade stand and selling things and things like that really did not start looking at the world of business and entrepreneurship until after I graduated from Stanford. And you kind of see that, right? I was studying things like product design, engineering, creative writing. I didn't study economics or business or anything like that. And it was only after I finished and with college and was entering the workforce, I began reading about business and started reading things like Fast Company and Harvard Business Review. I'm like, oh, actually, this is kind of interesting. 
And so obviously I graduated, well, actually this is not necessarily disclosed, but I graduated back in 1995. So at the very dawn of the internet era and the dawn of the startup era. And I was fortunate enough to be graduating at a time when you know I was coming out of Stanford. I was very exposed to the internet. I had an email address. I looked at the web already. And then I joined a company called D.E. Shaw, which Jeff Bezos worked for famously before he started Amazon. It's a company run by computer scientists. So I came into this environment where I was just learning all this stuff about the internet and computers and all this stuff. And I was looking around and we saw, of course, the Netscape IPO. That was like the big kickoff to the dot-com boom. And I said, oh my gosh, you know, this entrepreneurship thing, this seems pretty good. Let me figure out what I can do with this. Yeah, and uh, many people might know you uh, for Jörn Reed Hoffman's former co-founder and CEO of LinkedIn for creating the concept of blitzscaling when growing companies. What is blitzscaling and how does it work? So blitzscaling is a concept we came up with back in 2015. And what we're doing is trying to answer the question, why are there so many incredibly successful companies in Silicon Valley and now around the world that are just more valuable, faster than companies ever been in the past? And we looked at it in 2015 and our conclusion was, well, what's going on here is that these companies have found these winner take most markets and they're growing incredibly aggressively so that they can be the winner of the winner great take most market if you remember the movie talladega nights starring will ferrell as the race car driver ricky bobby we call this the ricky bobby principle because ricky bobby had a motto he inherited from his dad which is if you ain't first you're last and in these winner take most markets these ricky bobby markets that's exactly what applies and we came up with a fancy name for it, blitzscaling, because if you do that, then whenever people talk about it, you actually know that they're talking about your book, right? If I just said, oh, yes, we have a book out. It's about rapid growth. And I did a Google alert for rapid growth. And there'd be things about, you know, various diseases and conditions I'm like, no, no, this is bad. So we made up a new word, blitzscaling. And as a result, I can tell you, for example, that blitzscaling is absolutely huge in India. I had no idea that that was going to be the case, but my Google alerts tell me it's like the number one gifted book in personal development. I'm like, I don't really think of it as a personal development book, but you know what? Whatever you guys want, as long as you keep buying it. That's awesome. And what are some examples of markets that are blitz scalable? Well, let me give you a great example. It's on my mind because it just reported earnings recently. It continues to prove out something that I said, which is Airbnb. So Airbnb is obviously the company that you know as the uh, hospitality company, the space company, right? You're able to rent out a room or an entire apartment or a castle or a tree house or whatever the heck they have on Airbnb and stay there. And this is a strongly winner take most market for a couple of reasons. The first reason is that the selection is really, really important, right? It's not just a place where you're going to lie down and sleep. You're actually living there. You're sleeping there. You're spending your vacation there. So you want someplace nice. And you nobody ever goes into Airbnb, looks it up and says, oh, I saw a number on a board. It's roughly where I want it to be. It says $200 a night. Done. I don't need to take a look at it. I don't need to see what other people have said. Hell no. You're going there. You want to know, is there a problem? And so you spend a lot of time thinking about it. And so whatever service has the greatest selection, the most different options, this is the one that people are going to gravitate towards. The other thing is it's a big deal, right? It's a large amount of money you're spending. And Airbnb stay is definitely in the hundreds of dollars, sometimes in the thousands of dollars. And so you're willing to take the time to make sure you get it right. Again, that means that the level of selection is going to be super duper important. And so as a result, 
the hosts want to go where the guests are and the guests want to go where the hosts are and that two-sided network effect means it's almost impossible for anyone to catch up with airbnb because of their lead and this is one thing where i've been predicting great things for airbnb all along i predicted great things for them before they went public i predicted great things for them when they went public i remember when they went public i told people this company will be worth $80 $80 billion within the next couple of years. Well, you know, they just reported blowout earnings yesterday and the stock price shot up and they're at $120 billion. So they exceeded what I ever predicted. Yeah, there you go. And uh, one of the things that I've noticed, especially when you're trying to compete with other people, is consumers like to have frictionless technology. Absolutely. And that's something that Airbnb does great. And I think that's one of the main reasons, combined with the fact they scaled so quickly, that they succeeded. It's because it's how easy it is for people to book and just have a place to stay um, within minutes. And the word you use, frictionless, is so important. Like frictionlessness is critical for hypergrowth as well, for blitzscaling, because you cannot blitzscale if there's a bunch of friction, right? You're going to end up grinding the gears to a halt. And so trying to find ways to make things work smoothly, make things work naturally and effortlessly, all that helps you blitzscale as well. Let's go back to you and Reed Hoffman for the book Blitzscaling. How did you guys meet and uh, when did you decide to create a book about blitzscaling? Excellent question. So Reed and I actually met for the first time when he was starting LinkedIn. And what happened was I had gotten to know Jonathan Abrams, the founder of Friendster, a name that you probably don't even recognize. Maybe you're a student of history. You probably recognize that name, Seamus. But uh, Jonathan had got Jonathan and I had gotten to know each other. And so I was following this brand new world of social networking. And Friendster and LinkedIn and Tribe essentially launched at the same time. In fact, Jonathan Abrams and Mark Pincus, the founder of Tribe and Reed, all knew each other pretty well and had actually invested in each other. Reed was actually an investor in both Tribe and uh, Friendster, as well as being obviously the founder of LinkedIn. And of those services, LinkedIn was the one that made the most sense to me because Friendster is for single people looking for dates and I was married and Tribe is for people who are like in a motorcycle gang or or something like that. It wasn't me either. And LinkedIn was for people who like to stay in touch with the professionals they work with, which is something I was already doing with Microsoft Outlook notes and all sorts of other primitive things. So I really liked LinkedIn and I saw that the founders were all Stanford alums. So I just reached out to them. And that's how I got to know Reed. I brought him, uh, I, I set up a speaking engagement for him to speak to Harvard Business School alumni about the importance of signing up for LinkedIn. Uh, we looked at different deals together, co-invested once or twice, and sort of built up a relationship that way. And we also had a lot of things in common. We're both Stanford graduates. We're both intellectuals. We've gone through some of the same programs. At Stanford, there's something called Structured Liberal Education, which is a very intensive philosophy, history, humanities, literature kind of course that takes up half your schedule. And we had both done that, albeit five years apart. So we had a lot of things in common. We had met and worked together. And so many years later, when he and my friend Ben Kaznoko had worked on a book called Startup of You, they said, hey, Chris, can you help us as a consultant on this book? Because we know that you love writing and really know a lot about books. And then after that book came out, they're like, man, this writing is so much work. Chris, how about if you join us and, and we write books together? And that's how it all happened. And that was in 2011, if you can believe that. So it's been over a decade now. And uh, what was the first book uh, you launched? So the first book we launched 
uh, as a as a group, and this was Reed and Ben Kaznoka and myself, is The Alliance in 2014. So this is a book that came out from Harvard Business Review. And what happened was we had originally written a shorter essay that we published in Harvard Business Review. And they said, hey, this should really be expanded into a book. And so we expanded into a book. It came out in July of 2014. It's all about how companies and their employees and how managers and the employees who report to them should think of their relationship rather than thinking of it as a family or thinking of it as a bunch of mercenaries working for the highest bidder they should think about it as it's an alliance it's a, a relationship between peers or equals where each side is clearly getting something from the relationship and where they're being very explicit about what that is you brought up a great point because that's another thing that can build successful businesses, either make or break them, is businesses are all about a team of people. If you have a very strong team of people that are all very well interconnected and know each other well, there's a much higher chance of success of that team beating someone else who is all disconnected, they don't really know each other, and are not familiar with each other. Absolutely. And if you talk to venture capitalists, and you've interviewed a number of them for this podcast, you know that team is one of the things they look at most closely. Because at the end of the day, the business model may change, the product may change, the team may even change, but the core team probably remains the same. It's so you're relying really heavily on that core team as the one thing that's not going to change that much. And when we're talking about blitzscaling, the contrary is a company might end up moving so fast where they end up overvaluing sales and having cash flow mistakes. How can a company determine if they're going too fast and need to regroup? So one of the things we tell people is you actually have to have a good set of metrics about the company. So if you are actually measuring what's going on, and not just one thing, but also the different things that are happening, it'll be pretty clear whether you're going too fast or not. So let's take, for example, a company that, like you said, is, is emphasizing sales. And so a company that emphasizes sales is probably looking at one primary metric, which is what are our bookings or what are our revenues? And they're saying, okay, as long as this is going up, that's great. But the smarter entrepreneurs also looking at things like, well, what's our net promoter score? What's customer satisfaction? What's the level of engagement? What's our rent retention, both from an account standpoint as well as from a net dollar standpoint? If those things start to go down, it doesn't matter if the overall number is going up. Those foretell a very bad future because at the end of the day, you know, each individual customer makes their decision. They're not concerned about the overall revenue number. They're just asking themselves, is this thing still worth it to me? And even if more and more people are starting to buy it, if it's becoming less satisfying, if people are starting to drop out, then that's an indication that the growth that you've been whipping up with your sales team is actually unsustainable. Yeah, excellent point. I think the more data points you have for any company, the easier it is to figure out where your pinpoints are that you need to focus on and uh, how you can fix those to continue growing. Absolutely. And, you know, oftentimes companies don't invest enough in measuring this information. Now, the other thing is sometimes companies are too scatterbrained about this. They look at every single last metric. You can't do that either. You've got to figure out which metrics are important. And for that, you need human intelligence and judgments. There's no law that says this metric is always relevant. There are certain metrics like engagement that are probably more relevant than others, but even those aren't relevant in every single case. And uh, when a company is starting to blitzscale, and let's say, for example, Airbnb's case, when was a good time for them to stop blitzscaling? 
So the thing you're looking for, and they still haven't quite stopped blitzscaling, but the thing you're looking for in blitzscaling is you're looking at the overall leading metrics. So not the trailing metrics, but the leading metrics. And here's what I mean. Obviously, the ultimate metric for a company is its revenue and how much profits it makes. Right? These are classic financial metrics. That's what's reported on Wall Street all the time. When you hear a company put out their earnings report, those are trailing metrics, right? It's for the trailing 12 months or, or what have you. And those trailing metrics are, in fact, the best measure of the health of the company. However, they're trailing metrics. And if you rely on those metrics to make decisions, you're like, okay, let's make a decision, wait a year and see whether that decision worked out. A, there's so many other confounding factors. It's not clear that that's actually the conclusion you should reach. But B, it slows you down to a crawl. So you have to be looking instead at the leading indicators. And so leading indicators are things like the number of registered users, uh, the level to which the existing users are referring new users, the level of usage of the product. And if you start to see those go down, then you know, you know it's not the time to keep blitzscaling. It looks like we're starting to hit the, the top of the market. An example that we use in the book is Twitter, which basically hit its ultimate limit on the number of users roughly 2014, 2015. Twitter really hasn't grown in terms of its number of users since then. And there are new users being added, but then there are users dropping off and their daily active usage remains relatively the same. They've just gotten better at monetizing that traffic. But if the number of users is fixed, yeah, you can get better at monetizing the traffic, but it doesn't make sense to focus on speed in that case. It makes more sense to focus on efficiency. And that means it's no longer time to blitzscale. 100%. And you're a founding partner over at Blitzscaling Ventures. What do you guys look for when investing in a company? And what do you look for in the founders? So what we look for in a company in terms of an opportunity is two primary things. The two things that are more important than anything else are, are there winner take most market, effect, market uh, dynamics. So like network effects, for example, will do this. Sometimes a land grab will do this. That's to determine whether or not being the first to scale makes you a winner. And the second is distribution strategy. Do you have a distribution strategy that will allow you to grow faster than the competition? And if you have those two things, then we're very interested. Now there's a whole bunch of other stuff we look at because ultimately we have to make sure that you have a winner take most market and a distribution strategy and that your business is actually a good business, right? You want a business that makes margins, that makes money, that's scalable, that fits the market, all these different things. But without that winner-take-most market dynamic and that ability to grow faster than the competition, you can't really blitzscale. So those are the things we look for from a blitzscalability standpoint. But then we really start looking at the founders. And with the founders, and I'm usually the one in the company who talks with those founders and CEOs, what we're looking for are a lot of things that people would think. So knowledge of the space and the ability to work hard and perform a functional role in the company. But then the other thing we really look for is their ability to learn. Because what we know is the world changes very rapidly. And in blitzscaling, a company may triple in size every year or more. If that's the case, the way the company works is going to be trip is going to be changing every year as well and we need somebody who is willing to continue learning new ways of doing things to adapt to increasing scale as the company grows otherwise we're going to have to replace them and bring someone new in what stage companies do you guys invest in and why did you choose that stage so we typically invest in companies at the series b or series c stage 
And the reason we do that is because that really represents the bend in the hockey stick, right? People talk about there being a hockey stick where you have this giant up and to the right. Well, the bend in the hockey stick is where the company shifts from sort of growing slowly to growing quickly. And that usually means that they found product market fit and are really starting to focus on their grow to market. And given that our value to the companies is primarily around their strategy and how do they handle growth and how do they get to the market as quickly as possible, that's the point at which we provide the maximum value. So it just makes sense. A, it's the time at which the company has eliminated the most risk but still isn't priced at an insane level. And B, it's also the point where they really start to need our help. And our whole fundamental investing strategy is we go to these founders and CEOs say, hey, we'll help you, we'll partner with you and you don't have to pay us and you don't have to give us free stock you just have to let us invest and so we're typically going to focus on companies where they need us because otherwise how are we going to get access and uh, when we take a look at the entire podcast and episode as a whole what are your final thoughts and takeaways on starting a company or companies that are interested in blitzscaling so in terms of starting a company, what I tell everyone is there is no substitute for starting a company. That's not to say that everyone should start a company or that starting a company is always the best idea. But if you really want to be an entrepreneur, if you really want to start a company, there is no alternative, there is no substitute, and you should just go ahead and do it. And do it in a way that makes sense. I always tell people from my own life that I am very, very tolerant of variability. Right. I can tolerate all sorts of uncertainty and differences in outcome. What I am very intolerant of is downside. So what I tell people is as you're looking to be an entrepreneur, structure it in some way where let's say it doesn't work out. You know what? You didn't make money, but you didn't lose money. You didn't go into massive debt. You didn't bankrupt yourself or put your family's home into hawk or something like that. We have to face reality. The majority of companies don't succeed. Of all the companies that receive Series A funding from a venture capital firm, only 10% of them are ultimately going to exit and change the lives of their founders. So the odds are always against us. And so if we want to be able to play the game often enough to ultimately win, then we have to make sure that the cost of losing is low enough that we can keep paying it until we win. And you mentioned that only 10% of companies that raise Series A uh, funding end up succeeding and exiting. What are some things that companies can do to make that percentage a higher? So the most important thing they can do is really focus on building a great product that is going to meet some specific needs on the part of the customer. Uh, you've probably heard the expression Paul Graham said, make something people want. Yep. You'd be shocked at how often people don't make something people want. And I always tell people, listen, you gotta be able to, if you've got a product, you may believe in it, that's great. Put it in front of people and watch what actually happens. And it's tough because uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the, the television show, Silicon Valley, it was on HBO, maybe before your time, because I think it's been off the air for a couple of years. But there's a, a, an episode where they have a focus group that's talking about their product and nobody in the focus group can figure out the product, right? That's an issue. You actually have to get your product into the hands of real, normal human beings, not just your friends, not just people who have a, a, a vested interest or an unvested interest in your company's success, and see how they react and see whether or not you've built something that's sufficiently good. I 100% agree with you. There are founders that would, or for that matter, ads that will try to advertise what their business is 
And most people have no idea what they're talking about. And the founder will be like, oh, you just don't understand it. You're not up to my level. But if those are your customers, they should be able to understand it quite easily. So that means you have to know that there's something that you have to do either in your marketing or for your company to shift so that it's easily understandable. Absolutely. It's your job to make sure they understand. And it doesn't matter. It's like, oh, I, I did a good job of, of, of telling the story. I'm like, well, did they understand? No. All right. Well, you didn't do a good enough job. I mean, I don't care if you told it with style and panache and you were entertained. I care about whether they were moved. All right, everyone, that wraps it up. Thank you for tuning in to the Embit podcast. And thank you, Chris, for taking the time to come on the pod. It was a pleasure. Make sure to go check out Chris's podcast. And all of the links will be posted uh, down in the episode description below. Thank you so much, Seamus. I am grateful to be asked to be a guest on the Embit podcast because someday when you got your contract with HBO Max, you got your contract with Netflix, I want people to look back and say, hey, Chris Shea was on that show right at close to the beginning. I appreciate it. We'll see about that. Disclaimer, the podcast you just heard is not a recommendation to buy or sell any stocks, holdings, or securities. The podcast is also not meant to serve as the basis of any investment decision. 